The Iraq War famously is a result of lies. Wars in Somalia are a result of lies. The Second World War and the German invasion of Poland was a result of carefully constructed lies. That is war by media. Let us ask ourselves of the complicit media, which is the majority of the mainstream press, what is the average death count attributed to each journalist? of course the theme song from the third man uh and that is uh, anton Karras uh plays that uh, zither and that was julian assange up front uh, at an anti-war demonstration a decade ago uh, this is randy credico this is live on the fly assange countdown to freedom we're doing this through a zoom vehicle at and it's my very first one doing this uh through uh nycpodcasting.com go to them uh, because this is the only way in New York you're going to be able to record a show. And you got really quality engineers at that studio remotely. Uh, so Frank is still with us, and so is Eric. And uh, we're going to continue to do this now that I'm learning. And we have a great show today, folks. So um, you know the show Going Underground? Well, we've got the host of my favorite show, Going Underground. And we'll be right back with him after this little tune by Nina Simone. Ain't got no home, ain't got no shoes, ain't got no money, ain't got no class, ain't got no skirts, ain't got no sweaters, ain't got no perfume, ain't got no love, ain't got no faith. I ain't got no culture, ain't got no mother, ain't got no father, ain't got no brother, ain't got no children, ain't got no aunts, ain't got no uncles, ain't got no love, ain't got no mind. I ain't got no country. That was Nina Simone. Uh, this is Randy Credico. Randy Credico live on the fly. Assange countdown to freedom. Uh, this is our first uh, episode in, in three weeks because of the um, 
of the crisis, which we'll get into a little bit with our, our, our next guest, who I actually met. I've been wanting to have Afshin Bratanzi on, I would say, for about three years. When I first saw him interview Julian Assange back in 2016, four years now. Uh, and I finally met him on uh, February 22nd in London at a huge rally for Assange preceding the uh, Monday the 24th complete sham of a trial uh, in uh, Woolwick. So um, at any rate, I got like a one-minute interview with uh, Afshin, and then I uh, said, I'm going to get this guy on my show. So I've been hounding him for about three weeks now. It's the best show, by the way, around anywhere on the airwaves. It's called uh, Going Underground. It's been on, I think, there's 864 episodes, and it is, like I said, cutting edge. It deals with real news, real issues, and he's absolutely the finest at doing this. Welcome to the show, finally, Ashen. Hey, Randy. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's great to have you. I've been watching you um, for a, a long period of time. Let me ask you, first of all, um, I don't know that much about your background. A lot of people don't. It's difficult. I know that you worked with Tariq Ali back in the 80s. So, but, you know, there's, it's difficult to find a big bio on you in spite of your incredible credentials. So just a little bit on your background for people who don't know you. Yeah, well, obviously I'm a failed novelist. That's what I wanted to do. But uh, in the 80s, I think I became the youngest ever columnist on The Guardian newspaper. The Guardian, of course, now very well associated with Julian Assange. Some say that the newspaper was saved financially by the scoops from WikiLeaks. And uh, basically, that was a, quite a good time at The Guardian back then. And then it was Tariq Ali who brought me into television for the uh, relatively new channel, Channel 4. But then I went through loads of different production companies. I was at the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, for one Channel 4 company. And then ended up in the Arab world, launching a big business channel uh, from uh, the Middle East, when, uh, which, which went well until the bosses realized that the business channel was showing demonstrations in Seattle, which... Uh, wasn't quite the way business was considered in 1999. Uh, people said, hang on a minute, why does it look so different to uh, Bloomberg and CNBC? So basically many different channels, most of the time in television at the BBC, up until uh, the death of David Kelly in the run-up to the Iraq War. I worked for the Today program, which is one of the big established radio programs here in Britain. They famously say that Nuclear submarines uh, from the Royal Navy are told if there's no two consecutive Today programs, consider Britain to have been destroyed in a nuclear strike. So you can't be more establishment than that. But in the run-up to the Iraq War, when uh, the government scientist David Kelly was trying to leak information that perhaps uh, Saddam Hussein didn't have nuclear weapons or biological weapons or chemical weapons, Around that time, me and uh, no less than the Director General of the BBC, we all uh, left around that time. But since then, uh, yeah, I've been doing Going Underground on RT for something like six years now, and uh, unlimited freedom to criticize Russia, to criticize whoever I want. So, so it's a good gig at the moment. You are uh, an equal opportunity um, destroyer. I mean, you go after... When you see something is bad, you go after it. Uh, and this, which is the same way Assange operated. 
uh, and hopefully will operate in the future. I mean, you just, you don't censor yourself and nobody censors you. That's what you see watching your program, but you, you really bring up the shows and, and, and issues that you never see. I, I saw something on Yemen last week. Uh, you know, you go after Saudi Arabia, uh, which is something you never see in this country. You don't see it on MSNBC. You don't see it on uh, CNN. You don't see it on Fox News. Uh, but you do see it on Going Underground, which is on three days a week. Why aren't you on more than three days a week? We need you six or seven days a week. Because it's so much work just producing three of them. Clearly, I, Randy. <laughs> I, I can imagine it is because the quality of the production. How big is that production crew with you? Oh, we have such a talented team uh, at the show. And uh, we, did we did try the idea that, you know, we shouldn't be employing graduates. We should be having people that are uh, maybe people with no educations. I think uh, I really lobbied hard for someone who'd only uh, worked as a bus driver. Basically, basically we, uh, we have a team that are told, always think of the poorest person listening, and then cover the news from that perspective, which actually automatically makes the news sound different. As soon as you start talking about that, and of course at the moment when we know that our safety depends on the most vulnerable, because they basically, uh, it's all in their hands whether we're going to live or die through this coronavirus uh, pandemic. If you look at it through their eyes and always think about what they would ask as a question of a guest, I think uh, you automatically sound different to any type of news. Well, you've been pretty tough on, uh, on Boris Johnson and the dismantling of, uh, of the NHS, which I believe you think is responsible for the um, the poor, the poor response by the British government in uh, dealing with this crisis. Yeah, I mean, uh, certainly the people we're interviewing, very senior academics, medics, um, no less than the Secretary General of the United Nations, the eighth Secretary General Ban Ki-moon is ongoing underground on Saturday. All of them suggest that there are grave uh, errors being made by uh, different, uh, different policymakers, different governments around the world. Here in Britain, the uh, neoliberal virus, and it has been, of course, called the neoliberal plague by uh, Noam Chomsky. Yes. The, response, the response is dictated by repeated cuts uh, against uh, healthcare services. But more importantly than that, the idea that somehow a private-public partnership is crucial to healthcare, when of course, as soon as the profit motive enters into healthcare, something that uh, the 1945 Labour government of Clement Attlee here always avowedly said, to, he was very clear when the leaflets were given here about our, our universal healthcare system, it's not a charity. It's not a charity. It is complete entitlement that people have to adequate healthcare. And so I would also say that it isn't just Boris Johnson's fault. It is the Labour governments, particularly of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown here. It's, it's, that, it's that influence of private capital in universal health care that can be such a lethal cocktail. I know, of course, in the United States, you don't even, uh, well, I don't know what the latest is. As far as I can tell, uh, Donald Trump seems to be to the left of uh, Joe Biden when it comes to health care because he seems to be suggesting you get... Uh, some form of uh, universal health care that uh, the DNC certainly have never supported. 
No, they never have because they get a lot of money from health insurance companies. Uh, how bad do you think, uh, from your perspective, uh, is the U.S. healthcare system? And, and, and what do you extrapolate out of that in, in relationship to the uh, massive outbreak in this country? I think no one anywhere in the world understands how the richest country in the world by GDP could possibly have a healthcare system like yours. It doesn't make any sense. You have uh, critics uh, that uh, talk about it and have talked about it in the United States, and yet nothing seems to change. I think anyone who uh, goes to New York can hear stories over decades about people telling ambulances not to be called for fear of uh, charges being incurred. And uh, so it, it seems unbelievable. But then, of course, you have to, uh, to really understand it. Arguably, you need to be on K Street in Washington, D.C. to perhaps understand uh, why healthcare across uh, your country is the way it is. Well, you, know, you take a look at right now, the big hero in, in, the, in this entire epidemic uh, seems to be the governor of New York, which is ironic because under his watch, there were two hospitals that I know of that were closed now, Long Island College Hospital and St. Vincent's Hospital you know, in the West Village, uh, a major hospital. Both of them were, were uh, shut down and sold to developers, uh, and they both were donors uh, of uh, Cuomo's campaign. Uh, and he's advocated for other cuts uh, in, in the healthcare system in the state of New York, Medicaid, and all that in the past. Um, so, do you find it ironic? Uh, do you st uh, is he a big deal there? Is he a big like rising star uh, from uh, from that side of the pond when they take a look at what's happening here? Elite classes that obviously control the uh, airwaves in uh, NATO nations they seem to love this uh, governor of New York. In fact, his press conferences are carried on British television with no context whatsoever about his record on homelessness, his record on uh, the vulnerable, let alone his record on uh, private health care uh, involvement in uh, New York State. But then again, it's a bit like how Obama is revered by a certain elite class here in the European Union from where I speak even though, of course, we're supposed to be leaving the European Union here in Britain. Obama, as we now know, uh, after this uh, scandal over uh, an Amazon warehouse on uh, your eastern seaboard, it turns out his former press secretary, is he's straight to the fore, uh, decrying uh, worker rights at Amazon, where, of course, uh, where, of course uh, so many deliveries are being made in this pandemic and where... Uh, workers at the uh, richest company, one of the richest companies in the world, are worried about their own safety as they supply us with our deliveries, if you're lucky enough to be able to have an Amazon account. How many people in uh, London, in the poor districts, have that luxury of getting goods sent uh, through Amazon? Very few, right? Well, I mean, the UN rapporteur on poverty came to Britain and was roundly attacked uh, ad hominem attacks by British government ministers and MPs here in this country when he said that the years of austerity to bail out the banks after the 2008 crash were a, uh, a political decision that was uh, that had appalling consequences for the poor. There are food banks around where I'm talking to you right now. But the thing is, 
There are buildings that hide those food banks. There are class distinctions of where you go out at night. And I think uh, certainly a journalistic elite class is never going to come across the food banks. In fact, when uh, one of the greatest uh, film directors Britain has ever produced, Ken Loach, made a movie that won the Palme d'Or in Cannes about uh, poverty in Britain, he was widely derided as being as creator of propaganda, that it was only a film. One must remember it is a fiction. Poverty was here after the 28 crash, exacerbated by the policies. Now, of course, in the middle of a pandemic, it will be those vulnerable people that are at the front end of it, as well as the doctors and nurses. But there again, people talk about doctors. They're not talking even about the cleaners and the porters and the cafeteria workers. Yeah, but you do. I, you know, I watch your show all the time, and you do. You go all the way down to the people who are the lowest paid, do the hardest work in, in the uh, NHS. I want to switch, uh, continuing on the NHS, you had John Pilger, who uh, recently uh, unveiled a film uh, called The, the System uh, on the NHS, and uh, that was a, a brilliant interview. Have you seen the film? Yeah, yeah, The Dirty War on the NHS. And uh, he showed very clearly how the United States was going to be the model and how this is a long-term plan, that its roots are in Thatcherism, that because a universal healthcare system like the NHS is the closest Britain has to religion, because Britain is not a very religious society, unlike the United States, this, ha this had to be uh, destroyed as a, as a theoretical idea because a nationalized universal healthcare system has lots of uh, lots of consequences when it comes to how people live in a society and prevents them from being atomized because you start to care for your local community doctor or your local community hospital these these ideas must be uh, uh, ripped up if you're going to produce a truly free market capitalist idea of society albeit of course with lots of monopoly control that's what John Pilger helped illuminate in that dirty war in the NHS. And actually, uh, we hope to have him on our season finale on Wednesday uh, as he gets to grips with uh, uh, how coronavirus can be responded to by nations in an age of neoliberalism. It's, uh, you know, we don't know yet. I mean, and, I, and I've spoken to him about this. Uh, you know, he thinks that, uh, you know, this is the, all of these different steps that are being taken uh, in both democratic societies and, uh, and non-democratic societies, uh, whatever that term is, um, whatever democracy really is, I don't, I don't think it exists anywhere. But um, I, he he foresees some heavy consequences in terms of our civil liberties uh, long term. Uh, what is your uh, forecast uh, in the wake of uh, this epidemic? Well, I'm speaking to you from one of the most surveilled cities in the world. We're supposed to have more CCTV cameras than any other place per capita on Earth. And, uh, of course, Edward Snowden, who took political asylum, took asylum in Moscow. I mean, he illuminated how surveilled we were already. But, yes, now I think uh, these NATO nations all have to get used to the fact that we have police forces that are going to stop us on the street for walking in the park. They're going to ask us for our papers. And, of course, in the hands of uh, all manner of different governments, uh, once you have uh, elements of that encoded into uh, into policy, 
we can only imagine together with technology what uh, what an authoritarian authoritarian or or fascist government would like to uh, how they would like to use these capabilities to enforce enforce uh, a paradigm in which we then live well you know what it, right now we are on the brink of invading um venezuela this uh, bogus uh, expansion of a drug war uh, sending ships over there to the, uh, the Gulf of Venezuela in the Caribbean. Uh, and, you know, I oppose it 100%. But how do people like me and others who oppose it organize a demonstration in front of a government building at this point? We can't do it. No, all sorts of, all that kind of dissent is over. I should say, I used to live in Venezuela when Carlos Andres Perez was in power, a U.S. proxy, virtual U.S. proxy. And uh, it, the Trump administration cannot be isolated for being, uh, being uh, particularly culpable for sending the warships down amidst a pandemic because it's the European Union itself that has also recognized uh, this uh, never-elected-as-president character Juan Guaido as leader of Venezuela, the, the country with the world's largest known reserves of fossil fuels. So, um, again, I don't think one should... Uh, make it just a Trump decision no, if the I EU no, I, itself not, is also, I, uh, finds, it fit, finds reason to be able to dictate who is to lead this country or that country. And of course, as for the uh, reasons the Trump administration is giving, I mean, truly, truly bizarre when the U.S. proxy of Colombia has been shown in congressional evidence to be the leading uh, so-called narco-terrorist state, although I'm not sure about the usefulness of the phrase narco-terrorist when uh, obviously there is such demand for uh, illegal drugs coming from the United States. Uh, Americans want drugs. Uh, obviously, these countries uh, bear the legacy of so much imperialism and colonialism over so many centuries, they merely supply them, and certainly not Venezuela, and certainly not Cuba, much more so the U.S. proxy states of the Western Hemisphere. Well, you know, as far as the, this uh, new uh, you know, demand for drugs, I don't see it. People are in their homes right now. I mean, who are the suppliers? Where are they coming from? Uh, where are the uh, planes landing? Uh, do you really believe that there's an uptick in, in the amount of drugs being consumed in this country? Well, interestingly, uh, when the lockdown happened in London, first of all, I was criticized because doctors were telling me here that they had to hide their uh, badges and IDs for fear of uh, being mugged. Because one has to say, how would governments understand uh, the idea that people who are addicted to drugs, who have mental health issues, who beg all day, that their source of income is gone, clearly, under a lockdown? No one even thought to ask did they, about what happens to the addicts uh, that exist in society of uh, class A drugs. Uh, I'm not sure how many people obviously continue to be killed by the opioid crisis in the United States, let alone uh, those addicted to drugs coming from, uh, from Afghanistan, where, of course, uh, that's the United States' longest war. So um, I don't think we have the information particularly but there are millions of people addicted to drugs for a variety of reasons. Does one ever think that uh, governments uh, that come from a, that are staffed by people from a particular class will be worrying about them more than they'll be worrying about 
about bankers in Wall Street and uh, the city of London, I should tell you that while our journalists in this country ask, can we afford it when it comes to uh, protection equipment and money for the poorest, 645 billion pounds has been printed by the Bank of England to support the uh, city of London. And the, the bankers are obviously off the city of London. Uh, from where actually our finance minister used to work, Goldman Sachs. Good, uh, big brand name. I know Americans love brand names. Certainly, seem to be uh, thrown around at those uh, White House task, uh, coronavirus task force press, press briefings. Well, let's go from Venezuela now uh, before we switch on to Assange. I want to talk about uh, uh, Yemen and Iran. You've done a lot of stories on Yemen. What do people in this country need to know about what's happening in Yemen? I should say that I lived in Tehran. Uh, for a year, actually. So I, I know Iran reasonably well. Continually, the Yemen, uh, the Yemen situation is being characterized as a war with Iran proxies. That is not what the international aid agencies and NGOs are saying. This is the world's worst humanitarian crisis. And uh, Britain and the United States and France have been arming Saudi Arabia, a country known for, for crucifixions, uh, I mean, the human rights record of Saudi Arabia is, is something else. And they bombed, they bombed the Saudi Arabian Air Force. And, uh, the planes, the warplanes come from Britain. They're, they're trained, the pilots are trained by the RAF. They bombed the poorest country in the Middle East, Yemen, this week during a pandemic. Uh, this is despite the UN Secretary General calling for a global ceasefire because of, the, because of the challenges posed by the pandemic of coronavirus. The United States seems to celebrate no end its support for Saudi Arabia continually. And uh, it's, it's just astonishing that the Trump administration can celebrate its record arms sales to Saudi Arabia when, of course, we know that uh, the uh, attackers on 9-11, most of them, they came from Saudi Arabia. The involvement of Saudi one, right? There were 19. 19 of them were from Saudi Arabia, or 15, 16, and other three were from Egypt, from Saudi Arabia. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure if Donald Trump remembers when planes went into the World Trade Center and destroyed it, but certainly the entire U.S. elite establishment has no problem uh, with, uh, with selling arms to Saudi Arabia, widely seen by many as a pariah nation, to bomb the poorest country in the Middle East, threatening 20 million people. And uh, when it came to pandemics, when it comes to pandemics, they had to, the worst cholera outbreak on record was in Yemen. It happened over the past year. People in Yemen are afraid that cholera will return uh, in April. Uh, no one, no, no Western government seemed to worry about that epidemic uh, so much. Although they said they were giving aid, but the amount of aid money was dwarfed to the arms contracts that uh, governments in London and in Washington uh, were prepared to uh, participate in. So it's interesting what disease and uh, which diseases are better and, and which populations get privileged by different types of diseases because certainly no one appeared to be uh, as angry about the worst outbreak in history of cholera that occurred in Yemen 
while Washington and London poured weapons into Saudi Arabia, which were then used on Yemen, including evidence of cluster bombs, according to NGOs like Amnesty International and others. So there is a huge double standard in the world at the moment, but, but it is breathtaking that in the Middle East, the war goes on and uh, bombs were dropped. They killed horses, uh, of all people. Maybe horses, because you know everyone loves animals in the developed world. Maybe, maybe they'll, they'll uh, trigger people's consciences. But uh, certainly weapons were, dist- weapons were deployed on Yemen during this pandemic. And of course, Israel bombed Syria in the middle of this pandemic. That happening in just the past 72 hours or so. Well, you know, that's the uh, third rail. You can't talk about Israel uh, in this country. I was, um, in, in, a, in a negative way, I was um, running, I ran against uh, Governor uh, Cuomo back in 2014. And this was right after, uh, I think in the summer, there was bombing in Gaza where hospitals, people were killed in hospitals, uh, children and all of that. And he went and he visited those, uh, the caves uh, that uh, came through from Gaza, supposedly, and uh, with uh, with Bibi, and uh, so he just made one of those gratuitous stops and supporting Israel. And of course, I came out there and I slammed it on democracy. Now, very few people. I, I said this is a death sentence for my campaign. Not that I was going to win, but I certainly was not going to make any friends. Uh, why are politicians in this country so so hesitant? Uh, even in your country, with the exception of a few. Uh, to attack Israel's foreign policy and domestic policy in occupied Palestine. Well, you mentioned John Pilger earlier. He always said Palestine is still the issue. He made a documentary about it. Over here, we're coming to the final hours of the premiership of uh, Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Western Europe's largest socialist movement, the Labour Party here. And what did for him was his talking about Palestine. The power of uh, Israel uh, to uh, affect policy is, is quite amazing. Of course, uh, Bernie Sanders in the United States did not go to an APAC, the Israeli uh, lobbying organization, APAC meeting. Um, I don't think one could say definitely it was the power of uh, a foreign country, Israel, uh, over uh, democracy in the United States, democracy in Britain, that did for Bernie Sanders and for Jeremy Corbyn. But uh, certainly uh, a new generation of voters and a new generations of uh, activists, they're becoming rapidly conscious of the power of, of one government uh, in the Middle East over democratic institutions in their countries. Because it seems very odd that uh, if you talk about Israel, you're electorally disadvantaged in countries thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. They certainly seem to have a lot of power. Uh, now, I, we, we glossed over Iran. Uh, the uh, bellicosity by the Trump administration is really over the top. What is your take on that? Well, um, I'm hearing that uh, the Iranian-Iraqi coalition that... Uh, uh, provides the military support for the Iraqi government. I'm hearing that uh, they certainly are preparing retaliation against U.S. assets, continuing retaliation, because there have been attacks on the uh, U.S. occupying forces in Iraq in the past few days and weeks. I hear that retaliation for the Trump uh, 
assassination of the Iranian general Qasem Soleimani in Iraq, that those preparations are underway regardless of the pandemic, which is quite something. As for the Iranian uh, death toll from coronavirus, of course, there are people in Iran, um, I would say the majority in Iran, who are uh, being reawakened to their uh, feeling that Washington is trying to destroy their country and kill men, women, and children in Iran. The Reuters headlines from uh, the past few weeks, which said the Trump administration warns Iran that coronavirus cannot save them, uh, save them from the sanctions that continue to prevent medical equipment and uh, life-saving equipment coming to Iran. These, these things will be remembered. Uh, having he said that, that wait, wait, he denied that yesterday. He says that the uh, that uh, they didn't want to talk. Iranian leaders did not want to talk to him. They offered it, but they don't want to come to the table. I mean, you know, it was a complete lie. But did you hear that in Trump's press conference yesterday? Well, as you'd expect in a country where uh, scientists have been assassinated on the streets of the capital in Tehran, uh, Israel being accused, backed by the United States. Iran is in no mood of picking up the phone, as Donald Trump uh, keeps asking, as regards to rapprochement between Tehran and Washington. So while the uh, American public may be hearing, look, the option is open. All Iran has to do is call and uh, maybe a deal can be uh, had between Iran and the United States. Uh, given uh, even the European Union, which apparently is starting to uh, trade through third-party exchanges like Instex, evading uh, the U.S. sanctions and the illegal third-party sanctions that Trump is imposing on companies' uh, affiliates that are trading with Iran. The context of uh, what is happening in Iran right now is being completely traduced by the White House. And, of course, you're never going to expect much from uh, the opposition Democrats either because, of course, it was uh, uh, the Obama government uh, that continued to uh, threaten Iran and uh, uh, Iranian allies in the Middle East uh, throughout his presidency. So we'll have to wait and see whether uh, the United States really thinks it can uh, uh, start another war, uh, a hot war in the Middle East with Iran after arguably losing in uh, Libya, Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq. Uh, I think most people believe it can't, but that's not going to stop those who support Iran, who are not under the control of Iran, from now retaliating hard against U.S. interests and U.S. troops uh, in the region. What is it ultimately, and where is the hidden hand? What's the ultimate goal, uh, you know, for Iran from these uh, countries like the U.S., Israel? Who's who's really controlling it, and and what is it that they want that people don't see on the surface? I think uh, Iran obviously just wants to forge a separate way uh, that is apart from the uh, financial system that we see today. There's no way that Iran is going to participate in the World Bank and the IMF and uh, uh, using Federal Reserve uh, advisors as, to, as regards to the economy it wants to build. We've seen that time and time again. That is not allowed by Washington. Venezuela, Cuba, these countries are not allowed to forge independent parts. You're not allowed to, you're not allowed to do that. Of course, the irony is that this pandemic 
is suddenly showing that the economic modeling of the Federal Reserve, of elite economists from the business schools in the United States, it actually just falls like a house of cards when uh, a huge international crisis like coronavirus uh, rears its head. So I think a lot of people are going to be hoping that uh, coronavirus is going to dramatically change the way the world understands economics, understands uh, development, uh, understands what human happiness is. And as regards Iran, obviously it's forging ties, close ties with uh, China, uh, closer ties with Russia, and uh, the entire non-aligned movement is arguably being strengthened by coronavirus in understanding that the United States can't save its own people. It's hardly going to be looked to to uh, be a model of development for the rest of the world. Tell me about it. I'm in a city that is besieged with corona, um, with the COVID-19 uh, virus. It's, it's, it's all over the place. I mean, you know, you can, if I were to break a leg, I wouldn't be able to get to a hospital and do something about it. Uh, you know, if I had a heart attack, I wouldn't be able to get in and be resuscitated. There would be no ambulance. We are in very bad shape. We're talking with uh, Abshin Bratanzi. We'll be, uh, we're going to take a short musical break. We'll be right back to, to uh, discuss uh, the persecution of Julian Assange uh, right after this uh, musical break. And this is Paul Robeson, Jerusalem. We'll be right back. Uh, Paul Robeson, Jerusalem, I think recorded 1949. Um, and uh, we are back. This is Randy Credico, live on the fly, Assange Countdown and Freedom. Our special guest today is the great journalist, the esteemed, internationally esteemed, acclaimed journalist, uh, Ashen Ratanzi, uh, which you got the greatest name in the world, by the way. I want that name. <laughs> no one can pronounce it. No. But anyway, let's get. Let's get to Julian Assange. I think Paul Robeson is exactly the thing you'd want to play, isn't it? Because uh, Paul Robeson is so uh, emblematic of uh, how uh, a man can be persecuted. Right. Well, you know his history. We had uh, we had uh, uh, Tariq Ali talking about him and Cornell West talking about him. Uh, the way what happened to him uh, standing up, uh, and he was one of the most talented individuals. He was an athlete. He was a singer. Uh, you know, he was an actor and he was a, he was a writer uh, and uh, he did all of these great causes. And of course, he was persecuted. Now we got Julian Assange. Um, when did you first uh, meet Julian Assange, by the way? 
I always try and remember when. I mean, I, I remember being at his birthday party when he was under a tag, but it was sort of a mutual friend. I was a founder member of the Frontline Club, and uh, the guy who started that club in London, he's a former soldier, and he came under a lot of attack for supporting Julian Assange because you've got to remember how hated Julian Assange was by faux-left uh, progressive journalists, let alone uh, elites, let alone those journalists co-opted by the military and sources, privileged sources with government. I mean, the level of uh, wonder, uh, awe, and at the same time, jealousy, it was just, it was ripe in this society. And um, I think uh, he and uh, his associates, and notably his mentor, an American called uh, Gavin McFadgen, uh, I think they, they saw that what I've been trying to do is often uh, uh, the kinds of things that WikiLeaks was trying to do. And, uh, but I only, ironically, really got to know him much better when he was, uh, uh, when he found, um, when he got political asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, when, of course, as I understand it, you and I, we're all uh, surveilled by CIA-linked uh, Spanish companies, or at least that's the allegations going through the courts at the, at the moment. I can tell you for sure that I, I was, and I'm, I'm most certain that you were, and a lot of other people, uh, particularly that year 2017. Now, you've interviewed him uh, what, about a dozen times over the last seven years since you started uh, going underground? I guess so. The videos are up on YouTube where Julian uh, explains so many interesting facets to uh, global governance, geopolitics, and right down to the idea of uh, how uh, big multinational companies are, uh, are changing and, and altering our daily lives hour by hour. Well, here's, here's one interview here. Here's a little pastiche from an interview you did in 2013 or 14. And uh, this is about a documentary on WikiLeaks. And you discussed that here. This is about a minute and a half long. We'll be uh, right back on the other side and we'll ask you about it. At this sort of time, when there was this fight on with The Guardian, there was a film uh, that came out, uh, We Steal Secrets. I think people go through Just tell us a little bit about how, how that uh, gave a totally false... Uh, uh, account really of uh, yeah. who you are, well, that, what WikiLeaks was. I mean, it's there was a, a documentary funded by Universal, uh, about uh, two, two to three million dollars uh, in the U.S., and it, it it was you know what is typically done in a sort of liberal sphere, which is you build them up and you knock them down. They then went and came became close to the Guardian. So, in relation to that dispute about the Guardian's incompetence in putting uh, the password in, in its uh, book, um, they took the Guardians. It all just jumbled up together. Arguably not as incompetent all this stuff as one event you relate in here about the Ministry of Defence. We released a number of classified documents in the British Ministry, so it's very interesting uh, materials, uh, including uh, a 2,000-page document on how to stop leaks and how the number one enemy of the British MOD was not Russian spies, uh, but was in fact investigative journalists. British Ministry of Defence was sort of panicked that, that this material was there and they're going, my God, there's, there's pages and pages. In fact, there's hundreds of links and they had five exclamation marks in a row. And then we've got to do something. And they're like, mm, well, okay, let's tell British Telecom, who controls the internet for the uh, Ministry of Defence, that um, 
to prevent anyone in the Ministry of Defence reading. Disaster. So of course, it does get very serious. I mean, it's almost an aside here in this book, the uh, intelligence security company, which you discovered was tendering for uh, millions of dollars a month uh, to target people associated with you, you and WikiLeaks. That's HP Gary. Tenders in that case are for $2 million per month uh, to attack us, attack Glenn Greenwald as a, as a uh, supporter, the uh, Snowden journalist. Um, yeah, uh, and the recommendation uh, for those private intelligence companies to the Bank of America was given by the Department of Justice. Okay, so uh, that, that interview um, that, you, that we just played uh, a piece from, uh, that is, what, what was it about that documentary that was perverted uh, somewhat in, uh, in Hollywood? Uh, can you give us a little background on that? I think uh, most, uh, most so-called mainstream journalists, let alone artists and uh, filmmakers and actors, they, they arguably didn't fully understand how... Uh, important WikiLeaks was, or, and of course, there's a long, long history of CIA involvement in Hollywood. Uh, I mean, it's getting worse and worse if you listen to some directors. Uh, Oliver Stone, who's also been on Going Underground, is rather good about this. They, the alliances are too strong, and they weren't going to make out uh, that, uh, that that Ju- that Julian Assange was a great hero. Obviously. The film, uh, one of the many films about Julian Assange, I think that that one was one of the big, big uh, name films. I mean, the writers were involved with the Guardian newspaper. We know now that uh, the Guardian newspaper, arguably saved by the uh, uh, monetizing of WikiLeaks revelations, according to the UN Special Rapporteur Niels Meltzer, it more or less participated in the torture of Neil of uh, the torture of Julian Assange, because let's not remember, let's not forget, the UN has alleged that Britain and the United States have been alleged have alleged to be torturers in the whole Julian Assange saga. And I'm speaking to you just you know a few miles away from where he's being held in virtual solitary confinement in a prison where only uh, t- ten days ago charges have been held on murders occurring in the prison in which he is. And this is under the threat of the coronavirus pandemic hitting, hitting the prison. Well, what, what now we have a, a uh, notorious Rikers Island and it's spreading like wildfire there. Uh, what can you tell us about um, the effect of uh, coronavirus on Balmore's prison? Is, have you gotten any like new reports on that? Unfortunately, no one knows. All we know is that a judge, and I know you've been covering this, Randy, Vanessa Baratzer, who's been attacked so much uh, by those supporting WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, she refused to uh, comprehend that the threat of uh, Julian Assange absconding was was somehow less than the threat of uh, him dying. And uh, that's with the UN saying, that there is a real threat to the life of the most famous publisher in the world, Julian Assange of WikiLeaks, who revealed to us supreme war crimes under the UN Charter. The British authorities here are keeping him in a jail from which we have no knowledge as to 
the impact of coronavirus. There are uh, they're hiding the numbers uh, in Britain of uh, of coronavirus uh, infections, even amongst doctors. Allegedly, in fact, the health secretary here was reprimanded by the Royal College of Nurses for not keeping numbers of nurses who are dying of COVID nineteen in this country, and. The National Health Service, the doctors and nurses have been told they will face disciplinary action for talking to the media. So it's very difficult to get prison officers to come on the record or even off the record and tell us whether COVID-19 is killing prisoners in the British prison system. But, of course, uh, yeah, we are hearing, as you say, that Rikers Island in New York is, uh, it sounds, uh, sounds like a horror movie. I, well, I've been warning the governor and the mayor about this for a whole month that it was going to spread. My father was in prison back in the 30s, and there was a pandemic or an epidemic in that prison of tuberculosis, and everybody got it, and it spread to the community. So it does spread because you are at close range at all times. So if you have this like social social distancing, how can you practice it in prison? Plus, it's already in people going and visit. Like you go to Bel- let me go to Belmore's. You know, there, when I was there, I hung out at a place called Harry, the Great Harry, uh, over there in Woolwick. And uh, a lot of the guards uh, and court officers would go there for an ale after work. And it's right across the street from the uh, Northern Light Line, I believe, main line into Woolwick. Uh, and so tons of people are coming in and out, going to that bar. Then they're going from there to this prison to work. So, you know, with the spread, we don't know how bad it is in the, in the UK, particularly in London at this point, because this is a sleeping virus for a while. Uh, you got to believe that something has been transmitted into that prison. Don't you believe so? Well, well obviously, all the bars and restaurants are now closed, so they're not doing there anymore. But uh, the numbers, well, of, about- the numbers of, uh, of prison officers off sick, we're getting reports of... I mean, at the moment, one in four doctors, I have to tell you, are supposed to be off sick in Britain. We're getting various reports on that. The numbers of uh, prison officers and people in the justice system off sick because of uh, self-isolation or, uh, well, we're not testing, so we don't know whether they have coronavirus or not. We're not like other countries here in Britain. We're not doing any testing. We're we're arguably worse than what's happening in the United States. Donald Trump's uh, administration has called... Uh, the Boris Johnson uh, response to coronavirus, catastrophic. So we don't really know. And uh, we certainly don't know what is happening to Julian Assange uh, because it's very, certainly no one's going to be able to visit him now. He's, he's in there and uh, no one can uh, speak to him. Uh, so even his father, John Shipton, can't get in at this point, probably. You, did you cover that trial? I mean, you did cover that trial. What was your uh, assessment of the, the, that four-day, you know, farce that took place? What were you? Uh, what did you uh, garner from uh, viewing that uh, that that entire proceeding? I mean, I think it's been it, it's difficult to express how uh, how appalling uh, that trial was. People did come from all around the world. Uh, I think particularly the media in Britain and its inability to fully comprehend. I mean, the, again, The Guardian, I keep coming back to because it was affiliated with WikiLeaks. Yes, journalists have begun to understand at the, at the New York Times and other journalists, the, the newspapers, they seem to understand that if something happens to Julian Assange, it means that 
they too can all go to jail as well and have to answer to a grand jury in Virginia. But the lack of uh, lack of uh, highlighting of his case, why it wasn't on the front pages of every newspaper day after day, why Britain did not become a pariah state, arguably, because of the uh, way the trial uh, for uh, the this preliminary trial of Julian Assange is being conducted as to uh, his extradition to the United States for nothing, apparently, uh, apart from revealing uh, war crimes to the public. That, I think, was one of, one of the most horrifying aspects to the case. So it wasn't so much what was happening in court. It was a way that journalists who themselves must have some idea of self-preservation, they couldn't understand that this case marks the end of journalism in the Western world arguably, because it means we're all liable for uh, arrest uh, by U.S. authorities, no matter what nationality you are, no matter what story it is, and no matter what you're covering and where you're from. He would have no chance if he were extradited here. Uh, And it looks like this will probably be postponed, the resumption of the of the trial, which was set, I think, May 18th, uh, which means he'll be in, you know, he'll be incommunicado even longer because the process is going to take years by the time it gets to the Supreme Court uh, and and then up to the, um, I guess, the foreign minister, not the foreign minister, but the home secretary, if he signs the extradition warrant uh, to leave. Uh, but who is calling? Hope is, I suppose one's hope is that they don't want him to die of coronavirus in Belmarsh Prison because maybe it's just then. And uh, international media has a way of doing this, doesn't it? When someone tragically dies, they suddenly recognize what heroes they might have been uh, in their, during their lives. I think there may be some flicker of hope that... Uh, the authorities may understand how what a martyr uh, Julian Assange could be if he were to die in Belmarsh Prison uh, during this pandemic. Now that he's been uh, totally muzzled, if he weren't right now, what do you think he'd be focusing his lens on? Uh, wouldn't it be possible that he could be giving us information about the coronavirus and, and some of the stuff that behind the scenes people would not be fearful of getting information to him because that source wouldn't be revealed. Are we losing a lot in terms of knowing about uh, the virus uh, with Julian Assange being muzzled? We're losing an immense amount. The way he was able to analyze the masses of data and information coming in to prioritize within a uh, geopolitical dimension, different cables, different uh, sources, that would illuminate how our lives and the lives of people all around the world are being uh, corrupted by those in power. We're losing a huge amount. Of course, right now, we desperately need the publication of uh, whistleblower testimony about uh, medical uh, research into uh, these uh, types of viruses, these corona-type viruses. We need... uh, information desperately on uh, on the uh, big pharmaceutical companies and their research into flu viruses, into the military use of viruses, and into pandemic planning. Albeit that we know that Donald Trump, of course, infamously, thanks to your uh, great former now National Security Advisor, John Bolton, disbanded the pandemic response team a couple of years ago. 
as a great contribution to U.S. public safety. I think desperately we need to know about national security and what national security really means, not what national security has been told to us for decades by MI5, MI6, the CIA, the DIA, uh, and the FBI. Well, let, well, there you go then. That's the reason why they want him to be uh, isolated and muzzled. Uh, and that's the reason why this is continuing. Uh, the uh, Crown Prosecutor Services, who, who do they serve? Uh, who's calling the shots uh, that they're executing? Uh, most disturbingly, most disturbingly at all, of all, the former boss of the Crown Prosecution Service is poised to replace Jeremy Corbyn as leader of Western Europe's largest socialist movement, the British Labour Party, in the uh, this weekend, and uh, the Crown Prosecution Service, we know now from emails because of freedom of information requests from the Italian journalist Stefania Marizzi, we we have the information that uh, there were trumped up charges, there was corruption in the legal process. The whole thing is one big sham, as so many lawyers have said. Uh, lawyers, it now turns out, who were surveilled when they were even visiting their client, uh, which again would be uh, normally a, a reason for this whole case against Julian Assange to be thrown out of court. So uh, the Crown Prosecution Service, uh, well, when will these inquiries ever be made into their role in the alleged conspiracy against uh, against the those uh, trying to prevent the public from understanding uh, how their freedom has been curtailed by their governments for so long. Well, we know their role, but who's really squeezing them? I mean, is it coming from the, uh, from the prime minister's office? Is it coming from the MI6, MI5, uh, uh, from uh, the Metropolitan Police, or is it coming from Washington, from the, from the ambassador from, from the U.S. To, uh, to, I mean, who's really calling the shots here? You know, who really wants this? And there's got to be some real heavy hidden hand here that's, that's you know, playing with the wheel. Unfortunately, I think uh, when we try and understand the persecution of uh, Julian Assange, and people can watch my interviews with Niels Meltzer, the UN Special Rapporteur, who genuinely was so shocked. I mean, he said, when I first heard about the case, I thought he was some rapist. Then I looked into it and realized that Julian Assange was being persecuted in a way that was so cruel, so inhuman, by so many different levels of society. He was, he was so shocked, and he, he said it to me. The reason, uh, the reason he is being targeted is not, I fear, because of any direct order from Langley or from the White House or from the National Security Agency or from MI6 here. I'm afraid we're going to have to uh, quote uh, or look to Chomsky's idea about media manipulation. This is a multidimensional conditioning of uh, intelligence agencies, law enforcement, media, at all different levels, designed to immediately react when someone as dangerous to prevailing power structures as Julian Assange emerges at any time. We're going to play a clip of this interview you did with uh, with Niels Melzer, and uh, this was from, I think, about six or seven weeks ago. We'll be right back. We also know that the reasons the U.S. wants to extradite him for is a classic case of a political offense. 
And the UK law prohibits extradition for political offenses. The European Convention against Human, uh, for Human Rights would, would, pro, would prohibit it. The, uh, the Convention against Torture would prohibit it. Um, the, con- the International Covenant on Civil and po- Political Rights prohibits it. There is no discussion that this extradition could lawfully go forward. So, in my view, his whole detention now, at present, has no legal basis. Okay, so Melzer says that this entire... Uh, trial is, is a fraud. I mean, he, he's really gone beyond what I thought he was going to ever do when he first met Julian Assange with, with, with a psychologist and with a, with a medical uh, doctor. Um, what do you make of Nils Melzer? Is he, has he not been a godsend to this movement to free Assange? Well, what's interesting here is that Uh, If you hear statements from the White House or Downing Street or Brussels, Paris, Berlin, the rules-based international order is a phrase so often invoked as a defense of NATO nation aerial bombardment of country after country. But as soon as a figure like Niels Meltzer or there have been many other brave UN special rapporteurs, when the United Nations, with their imprimatur, talks about justice, the rules-based international order, it is ignored. It is uh, uh, those people, those individuals get attacked. And uh, I didn't raise it with the with Ban Ki-moon, who was, uh, of course, a UN Secretary General. But we know that uh, Secretary Generals of the United Nations are targeted by U.S. Uh, uh, national security agencies. DNA, for heaven's sake has been taken from UN Secretary Generals. So uh, I think when uh, Niels Meltzer says this, it's been useful in illuminating, useful not so much for Julian Assange fighting uh, for his freedom, but useful in illuminating to the rest of us and to people all around the world that when it comes to, uh, when it comes to a rule-based international order, uh, the UN are not listened to uh, by NATO nation governments. Well, it wasn't just Melzer, but previous in 2017, the uh, United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary uh, Detention came out and said he should be freed, not only freed, uh, but compensated. And that fell on deaf ears. Uh, How does the British government uh, justify blowing off these two UN esteemed, you got Amnesty International, you have all these human rights groups that have come out calling for the release, how do they justify just blowing all of these reports off? I suppose Britain and British authorities are lucky that there are establishment characters who are so involved in the alleged persecution of Julian Assange. So while Britain tells Amnesty International and all manner of NGOs, the lonely UN special rapporteur, they're not going to be impacted on by any accusations that Britain is arbitrarily detaining uh, the world's most famous publisher or torturing him, let alone how uh, the Metropolitan Police here in London dragged him out of a, uh, an embassy. I think uh, they're lucky because, I mean, take Julian Assange's uh, former lawyer, Amal Clooney, famously married to the actor George Clooney. She's a barrister. She worked with uh, uh, Jeffrey Robertson, who's also been on my show a number of times, who has uh, decried the uh, lack of justice in Julian Assange's case. Amal Clooney could be saying more. Why doesn't she say more? It's almost as if 
there are people in power that realize, even when they're associated with defending Julian Assange, the danger is too great. They can't raise the case more or do it behind the scenes. Of course, what we need more than ever are public castigations of governments in London and in Washington and others, and front page news in all the newspapers and front uh, uh, leading uh, headlines in broadcast media that uh, one of the greatest um, threats to Article 19 of the UN uh, uh, Charter, that of freedom of the press, is being gravely threatened uh, because of the torture and detention of Julian Assange in London. Well, there there have been uh, two, you know, not bright lights, but little lights here. First of all, uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, in the House of Commons came out and slammed the persecution of Julian Assange just as after the election. Of course, that was like two or three weeks ago. Boris Johnson seemed to have concurred with him. So you have that situation you can talk about and that the queen called this a political affair that she didn't want to get involved with. Get What's your take on those two developments? Yeah, I saw the letter from the queen. I didn't really understand it, but then I don't really ever understand the royal family's... Uh, relationship to these, uh, these these sorts of issues because uh, it seems when it suits the royal family, they can enter politics of a kind, certainly when it comes to taxation. As for uh, Jeremy Corbyn, notable really that when Jeremy Corbyn really stood a chance of becoming prime minister, he, his party under his leadership uh, was the most successful uh, at uh, uh, some elections more successful than any Labour Party since 1945. There was nothing about Julian Assange when he was uh, really had a chance of getting his uh, hands on power. So there again, you notice that when people rise to a certain level, they stop talking about Julian Assange. Very, very interesting that. Um, Bernie Sanders, I haven't heard him talk much about WikiLeaks at all over there in the United States. And... Uh, as to uh, whether these, there are glimmers of light from Boris Johnson, who is a former journalist, and uh, that's all he ever did before becoming uh, prime minister. Uh, well, I mean, time is ticking, and there is coronavirus, and he is in jail right now. Right. Uh, so we just have a few more minutes here. I want Two things I want to get to. First of all, you call him the most famous journalist on the planet, which he is. And so he is a journalist and uh, he is being persecuted and he is a good guy. And you've defended him from the very outset. Uh, how would you classify him uh, professionally, Julian Assange? I think uh, Julian Assange is uh, someone who understands the multi-dimensional nature of geopolitics, ideally suited to receiving anonymous leaks of information because he understands the interconnectedness of all these different issues uh, being, uh, being connected to big business, to money, and to politics, and to class. And I think that, that made him ideally suited to understanding it. I don't think if, uh, and I think, uh, if the data and these whistleblowing information had somehow got straight to the New York Times, to Spiegel, uh, Le Monde, uh, 
uh, the Guardian. If, if it had come straight to them, maybe they, they wouldn't have been, uh, maybe it wouldn't have been so, it made such a big impact. So I think Assange is particularly amazing when it came to WikiLeaks because he understood that framework of interconnectedness because after all, when as a young man, he was a hacker. He's a young man. but I mean, he understands inter interconnectedness more than anyone because he was working on breaking into uh, connections from a very early age. Um, overall, the last 14 years, what has Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, what has been their contribution to journalism? I think uh, in what? In, in hundreds of years in the future. What will we have? The biggest leaks of uh, the national security state, what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex, in history. So those, that archive of information, all curated and uh, documented by WikiLeaks, it'll stand the test of the time far, much longer than uh, any articles, any diatribes, propaganda against WikiLeaks and Julian Assange's. When all the editors of, uh, when all the arguably cowardly editors of newspapers today and elite uh, media, when they're all dead and buried, people will still know the name Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Hafsen Ratanzi, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. How do people uh, reach you? Uh, where do they go to watch your uh, archived interviews with Julian Assange and, and Niels Melzer and John Pilger and uh, Stefania Marizzi and all the other greats? How do people uh, access that? It's all on uh, underground underscore RT on the YouTube uh, uh, platform. And uh, just Google the name. There's just so much stuff up there. But uh, they can get it all, all through that. Of course, follow me on Twitter. Uh, well, people are probably following you from uh, the FBI and the CIA and the uh, MI6 and the MI5 and the Met Police. Uh, do you ever worry about that yourself, uh, about, uh, you know, something I've happening had, to I've, you? Thankfully, I mean, I've had my bank account shut down uh, and so on and uh, that kind of pressure. But, I mean, you know, right now, I, people, as people say, people are under pressure during a lockdown. I think now is the time to think of people like Julian Assange and Belmarsh. That that is real uh, sacrifice for one's principles and the principles uh, that uh, arguably guarantee all our freedom, all the uh, all the billions of people on earth. They're guaranteed by what uh, what Julian Assange is fighting for. Well, this has been uh, quite an interview. I really appreciate you giving us so much of your time uh, and continued. Continue the great work uh, that you've been doing over the decades. Uh, you really uh, stand out, and uh, you've made a great contribution yourself, like Julian Assange. Uh, and uh, we hope to uh, we hope to uh, see you soon in the U.S. You know, on a tour with a book. I love that. I love that. I love America and the United <laughs> States. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll see you when the uh, trial resumes, if it does resume. Uh, if uh, we're not in lockdown at that time. Thanks a lot. Uh, and uh, Thank you, Randy. Success, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. The Eastern world, it is exploding. Violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war. 
boards that gun you're toting And even the Jordan River has bodies floating But you tell me over and over and over again, my friend I you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction Don't you understand what I'm trying to say? Can't you feel the fears I'm feeling today? If the button is pushed, there's no running away. There'll be no one to save with the world in a grave. Take a look around you, boy. It's bound to scare you, boy. And you tell me. Okay, folks, that's uh, it. Um, we will continue to be doing this show. Uh, I want to thank uh, the folks at uh, nycpodcasting.com uh, for walking me through this uh, process on Zoom. We are um, Randy Critical Live on the Fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom. Our website is assangecountdowntofreedom.com. Um, we are... We are uh, in need of a little bit of funding, and there's a way you can support us, you know, whatever, $10, $20, but we, we do have to pay for our studio costs and the engineering costs and all of that, and I know things are tight right now, but if you can, you'll find it somewhere on that website. In fact, you can find all of our shows on that website, all now 12 episodes of Assange Countdown to Freedom. Uh, we know there's a crisis going on. We know that everything else pales in comparison uh, in most people's minds. But the most famous journalist, the most important journalist in the world is being persecuted. We cannot forget him. And uh, just like you cannot forget uh, shopping, you cannot forget uh, going to the doctor. If you can get to the doctor, a lot of things that we have to, we have to continue to operate. And uh, we're going to continue to do this show. We're very mindful. I'm holed up. I haven't been outside in weeks. I'm inside the whole time. Uh, a lot of miso soup. All right, so that's AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. Thank you very much. We'll be coming back very soon. And this is uh, the tune I was going to play a few weeks back for Alicia Castro, the entire uh, piece by Leonard Cohen. It's called The Partisan. Thank you all. And see you next week, maybe twice next week. Goodbye, everybody. When they poured across the border, I was cautioned to surrender. This I could not do. I took my gun and vanished. I have changed my name so often I've lost my wife and children But I have many friends And some of them are with me An old woman gave us shelter
shelter kept us hidden in the garret then the soldiers came she died without a whisper 